What if you questioned everything? My guest today is NQ, the spoken word poetry slam champion. Um, not only is he that champion, but he's also a multi-platinum songwriter, written songs, hit songs for the likes of Selena Gomez, uh, Miley Cyrus, Foster the People, and others. Oprah called him the Super Soul 100 list of the world's most influential thought leader. And who'd have thunk that on that list would be a poet? Now, I know from uh, knowing my art history that poetry is one of the oldest art forms in the world. In fact, it's just storytelling. And if you know anything about storytelling, it's what in part connects us. Our brains are wired for story and narrative. And that is in part what makes NQ, my guest today, an amazing guest. Not only are stories a hook for us, as in they catch our interest, but they're also a fantastic way of sharing and connecting with others, of understanding, and as a path to our own vulnerability. Now, it's not often in any episode of any podcast that we get to have a, a deep, meaningful conversation with uh, the guests, in this case, in Q, around uh, their vulnerability as a creator, an entrepreneur, an artist, um, the humility that you have to have to put in the work, the ability to look back on success, find out what worked and what didn't, and uh, understanding the struggles that we've all gone through or, or that in our particular case lies a universal human truth. Of course, that is it's amazing when you can get any one of those things into an episode. But in this episode, we also get real live performances from NQ as a part of his spoken word art. It is so powerful. He does, he performs two poems for us in the middle of today's episode that will awaken you, inspire you, and help you feel his true power as an artist. And also it'll, it'll cause you to reflect um, on your own life, as you can tell from my reaction uh, from both of his uh, performances here, here in the show. Um, you, you can you can hear it in my voice. They both completely rocked me in a way that I did not expect. So um, get ready for uh, an amazing journey. Uh, I'm grateful to my dear friend Rich Roll for introducing me to NQ. And, and it turns out we got a bunch of mutual friends. And so there's a there's some good um, backslapping at the end of this uh, conversation. And just so much respect and appreciation, admiration for this man, his story, and what you're about to learn from this show. Uh, so I'm going to get out of the way, but before we do, just a super quick word from our sponsor, and then we're going to get into it with NQ, the National Poetry Slam Champion, award-winning poet, and multi-platinum songwriter. Hey, quick question for you before we get into the episode. Do you feel stuck by any chance? Do you feel like your dreams are are a bit out of reach or you've got more potential with this one precious life than you're realizing today right this moment well you know what i got an idea life isn't about finding fulfillment and success it's about creating it so to that end i wrote a book it's a new book it just dropped in september it's called creative calling and it became an instant bestseller when it was released this past september now, if you dig this podcast, then this book is the perfect, and I mean perfect, companion because it takes the ideas we discuss here on the show, creativity, entrepreneurship, how to pursue your dreams and career hobby and in life, and it organizes them in a super clever and incredibly practical way that will help you take action. Richard Branson said, if you want to focus on creating amazing experiences, businesses, and relationships, then Chase's book, Creative Calling, is the engaging guide to doing just that. 
Brene Brown said, Chase's experiences and his commitment to creating make him the perfect guide as we set out on our own adventures to learn how creativity has the power to change everything. Now, those reviews are just the tip of the iceberg, and if you want, you can read a couple hundred more five-star reviews on Amazon. But again, this is not just about buying the book. It's not a transaction. This is about unleashing the most powerful force we have in this world, our creativity. It's so important that we rally as a community around the ideas we believe in. And so if you believe in this show, you believe in the work that I've done in my whole you know, lifelong career as a creator, then picking up a copy of Creative Calling would be so appreciated. And again, most importantly, it's about being a messenger for spreading this message. This is my ask of you. All right. Thanks very much for listening. And now let's get back into the show. Thank you. Welcome to the show. We made it happen. We made it happen. Thank you, Chase. I appreciate it, buddy. <laughs> Super happy to have you. And um, I always love just to do a little, um, I don't know, look back and, and pull on the historic thread. And that is our mutual friend, Rich Roll. Yeah. Um, I just, I got a, a text from him and he's like, look at, I want to make something happen here. And I was like, yeah, shoot, brother, what do you got? And he's like, you gotta, you gotta kick it with NQ. You guys are brothers from another mother and, you know, podcasting or not, and, you know, sharing about one another's books and, or not, you guys are going to get along like peas in a pod. And of course, who says no to that, especially when it's coming from our guy, Rich Roll. It's, um, it's really hard to say no to Rich Roll. <laughs> I don't recommend it. You know, it is. So anything he tells me to do, I do it. And he's a fantastic friend and been so generous with me and had nothing but really kind words to say about you. So I'm, I'm happy that we could create the space to make this happen. Agree. Agree. And congratulations on the new book. Thank by the you. Way. Such an impressive chunk of work, man. I'm holding it in my hand right now. And uh, it's got a bunch of uh, dirty pages, dog ears. Uh, it looks like I've been carrying the thing around with me for a month. Um, thanks for sending me a copy and congratulations, bud. Awesome, man. Yeah, I appreciate that. That's the best compliment when it's beat up, you know, <laughs> it's been lived with a little bit. I'm actually staring at the uh, first hardcover copy that I have, which we'll send you a copy of as well. And uh, it really looks beautiful, man. I'm, I'm really ultimately proud of uh, not only what's inside, but what's on the outside. And uh, it's the first time I've ever had a home for my art. You know, oh. all of my poetry, all of these years, man, they've been living, breathing documents and I've shown up and performed and then kind of disappeared. And They've always kind of changed and evolved as I've changed and evolved. So it's amazing to have it in one place now and to have it be separate from me so that it can take on a life of its own. That's well said. And speaking of a life of its own, I want to go back and to, to trace the origins, not just of your work, but of your life. So start from the way back. Give us a little bit about... Uh, who you are and how you ended up being uh, a national poetry slam champion, an award-winning poet, um, a multi-platinum winning songwriter. I mean, the list is long and um, storied. So uh, take us back. Yeah. So I was born and raised in Santa Monica and uh, my mom's school teacher. My father was not around. And so she obviously raised me on her own and, um, you know, I think I was always kind of questioning myself, my environment, externalizing, you know, masculinity, um, always thinking, what am I supposed to be like um, because of my specific situation? And ultimately, I think that fueled 
uh, a lot of the energy that I put into my art and the emotion that I put into my art. And when I was 13 years old, I absolutely fell in love with hip hop. I just loved the expression of it first from, you know, the artists that I was listening to. And then ultimately I started freestyling myself. And I'd say that was my first form of meditation because uh, it allowed me an outlet for all of the repressed thoughts and emotions that I had no other way to get out of my system. And it also puts you in the moment like nothing else does, because when you're freestyling, you can't think of anything else but the next word, the next rhyme, the next line. And so it brings you into the now. And I don't think I understood that at the time, but I, I know that I felt that at the time. And, uh, and then when I was 19 years old, I wound up at an open mic for poets and I started just doing my written raps acapella and, you know, it caught on and the place is called the poetry lounge here in Los Angeles. And, you know, literally it's one of the biggest, if not the biggest open mics in the country. And they've gotten 250 to 350 people every single week for like 20 years now, cause I'm 41 and I just loved that environment, man. You know, people would come, they would sign up on the list and get up on stage and be vulnerable from a place of strength. And they were celebrated for it. You know, when someone got up and said something true to them, the audience would snap and clap. And, you know, it was alchemy. And that space was like church without religion, man. And I just went back every single week. And, you know, we ended up being on HBO's Deaf Poetry Jam. You know, that that community became a family for me. We won the National Poetry Slam Championships, as you mentioned. And and then one day I kind of woke up and realized I was more of a poet than an MC, And that was the beginning of my journey. Man. All right. Let's go back early hip hop influences. Who do you uh, who do you reach back into that vault and point at? Yeah. I mean, everyone from Gangstar to Freestyle Fellowship to Far Side to Trap Call Quest to De La Soul to Nas, you know, Rakim. Um, there were countless, countless voices that influenced my voice. Um, and really I just related to it. I just related to the passion, to the anger, to, uh, the political stances that people were taking. And at that time in hip hop, you know, everyone's voice was so unique. If you sounded like anyone else, you were called out for that. Um, and there was something really beautiful about that era. And, uh, I was immediately drawn to it. Man. And for in that space from 13 to 19, you talked about, you know, questioning things like masculinity, what it all meant, what you were here for, whether you were doing it right or the way it was supposed to be done. Um, describe a little bit more of the, your, your day to day. Did you, did you identify as, uh, as an artist? Did you identify as a musician, uh, as an MC? Or was your identity parked in a bunch of other places? Was it, was the identity confused or were you confused? Um, was the identity confused or was I confused? That sounds yeah. like the start of a poem. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm working on my, it's early craft for me right here. Well, you, you, you have a listener. <laughs> you have your first audience member right All here. Right. All right. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, like anything else, growing up is always hard. And uh, I just didn't have any male uh, mentors in my life, really. There was no males that I, that I trusted. My mom did a great job in raising me. And, you know, I look back and, and she's my absolute hero. Um, and she created an, a really awesome life for me. 
Uh, I would not be who I am in any way without her love and support. Um, but I didn't ever really feel like I belonged, you know? Yeah. And so I was always questioning who I was and who I was supposed to be and the culture. And that's really where my name came from in Q. I mean, when I was 15 years old, a friend of mine was like, he was like, you know, your rap name should be Inquiry. And so, you know, it's because I was curious about everything all the time. And so that started being my name. People just started calling me Inquiry and then they started calling me NQ and then they started calling me Q and I <laughs> rarely ever heard my real name after that. Um, so it's, it's something that's always stuck with me, but it's also been a life philosophy to question everything yeah, um, and to look deeper. And I consider myself a seeker in that way. Well, that brings up a, uh, I think a really, um, something that I was curious as hell about, and it dovetails with what you just said. If you change the present, you change the past and the future. These are words that are written on the front of your book. Mm -hmm. What? What's the context there? Well, first of all, time is relative, right? You know, our experience of time is relative and it changes based on our size and our speed. Uh, so that's just something to take into consideration when you're thinking about that sentence. But what I really mean is that if you change the now, you change your relationship to the past and you change what you're manifesting in the future and you do it all in one moment. So if you change the present, you change the past and the future. And by changing the present, is that by is that like couched in intention or creativity or what are the ways in which we can change the present? It's really any avenue to alchemy. Um, but, you know, look, there are things that happen to all of us and the circumstances are different, but the human story and the human condition is the same. And ultimately, whether or not we understand what these things are or even why they happened, whether they make sense to us or not, after we go through the normal process of understanding them to the best of our ability and grieving whatever emotions we have to grieve, then we have a decision to make. Are we going to be a victim to the situation or are we going to be empowered by the situation? And everybody's, you know, kryptonite is also their superpower. So for example, with my father, you know, like, uh, that questioning of myself and questioning life became a part of the main muscle that I used to create my poetry. And I wouldn't be who I am had I not had that experience. And I write about that in the book. You know, there's a poem called Father Time where I kind of talk about um, coming to a place of gratitude for that relationship and all that it taught me. Um, and ultimately that gratitude is a choice and forgiveness is a choice and you can't really have forgiveness without having gratitude, you know, because you have to find a way to be grateful for the things that you perceive that happened to you that were negative, you know, and that's the human experience, man. You're not going to have positive without having a comparison point. So, um, yeah, <laughs> I, that is so I think so articulate for a what is a reasonably complex idea, and that's one of the things that I quickly gathered in um, in reading your book and in processing your work that I was watching online. Um, there's some there's, there's a phrase I don't remember. Uh, gosh, it was like Goethe or someone was like, "In the particular lies the universal," right? Mm. And that is each of our own individual stories is feels so 
real and raw, but it is that thing that connects us all because we've all got some version of that either story in our head or experience in our heart or our soul. Um, you mentioned Father Time, which is a, a, a poem that's right up front in the book. And um, that made me want to ask, you know, I would, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I would also love if you were willing to, uh, you know, read a couple of poems for us or for the people who are unfamiliar with your work um, that are listening right now, uh, or, or I don't know how, if, if you call it perform or you wanted to do some freestyle, but just at any point, and I would invite you now, or, or if you want to talk for a little bit more, just maybe a, once or twice through our, our conversation today, if there's something that strikes you that you would like to perform, I would invite it. So, yeah, absolutely, um, man. I, I appreciate the invitation. And um, yeah, why don't I do Father Time? Because I think it'll give people a sense of my work and also, uh, you know, give them a window into my life a little bit more. I, I would love that. Thanks. Um, um, pins and needles over here, ready All when right. you are. I'm staring at the number wondering if I should call. I can hear the tick-tock from the clock on the wall as it meshes with the thump-thump beat of my heart. Sometimes getting something started is the hardest part. I didn't meet my dad until I was 15. I'd seen his photograph, but his image was sickening. A coward with a dick, but no balls to back it up. See, when he left me as a kid, I had cause for acting up. The funny thing about hate is the person you hate doesn't feel that hate. You feel that hate, but wait. The weight can be too much for a person to take, and personally, I was hurt, so I just locked it away. I was angry all the time, and I didn't know why. I couldn't handle my rage, so I would hide it inside, pretending everything was fine became a daily pastime. Time passed, and I started to believe in my own lies. I took it out on my mom because she raised me alone. The rage I couldn't own had left me totally numb. It was like landmines in my mind that I didn't understand, so when the boy inside cried, the young man outside yelled. I think I learned about my masculinity from TV. The people weren't real, so I knew they couldn't leave me. I'd sit there for hours right in front of the tube. The images that I saw were my depiction of truth. It was manhood in a box, and I bought into it. The censorship of anything inside of me that's sensitive. The sentence is a lifetime of tears suppressed in a stone face, an overblown ego they've distracted through a paper chase. Back when I was nine, I imagined in my mind that my father was a spy working for the FBI, and that's why he couldn't stop by right or drop a line. He was off saving our lives from the bad guys. But that was just a lie that I used to get by so that you wouldn't see the tears welling up in my eyes. When you're rejected by the person that you created by, you secretly feel like you don't have a right to your life. I thought if I confronted him, then it would make it all right. But since I couldn't forgive him, it just recycled my spite. I remember meeting him for the first time. 
Every time a person passed by, I would ask, Mom, is that him? I look a little like him, right? No? Oh. Well, what about that guy? And that was what it was like to meet the man that gave me my life. To shake his hand and look into his eyes. We talked till he apologized, then said our goodbyes. I walked away on my own, then I began to cry. Now, for years after that, I acted like it's all resolved. I told him what I thought, so I figured problem solved, but it just re-evolved. My insecurities were eating at my mental health. I took it out on the world because I hated myself. That's when I finally decided I needed some help. I opened up. I started writing and sharing about my past. I got honest with myself and I started chipping at my mask. I looked into the mirror and confronted what I saw, accepting the reflection by embracing every flaw, then directing the connection into breaking down the walls by reflecting the perfection of the God inside us all. I stopped focusing on everything that I had been hateful for and started focusing on everything I could be grateful for. And personally, there is a lot I can be thankful for. If pain is dragging you down, just cut the ankle cord. That's when the weight lifted, and I really started living. That's when my hate shifted, and I really started giving. It's when my fate twisted. It was like an ego exorcism. Your mind state can be the most powerful of prisons. My father never played catch with me or gave advice. But if nothing else, that man gave me my life. And that's enough for me. If that is all he could ever give. Because I'm appreciative for every day I get to live. And even though I don't need my dad to validate me, I thought that I should write this poem to thank him for creating me. Because every moment that we are alive is like a gift. And if that's not enough to forgive, then what is? I'm staring at the number wondering if I should call. I can hear the tick-tock from the clock on the wall as it meshes with the thump-thump beat of my heart. Sometimes getting something started is the hardest part. I pick the phone up. The dial tone begins to sing. I punch his number into it and it begins to ring. 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 Hello, Mike. Hey, man, it's... uh. It's Adam, your son. Damn. <laughs> wow, thank you so much. Yeah, man. man. Yeah, thank you for listening. Whew. Clearly, uh, vulnerability plays an important, an important part in the work of most art, if not all of it. And you you show up with that in a way that um very few people that i've had on the show and i don't know what it is it's maybe it's the raw 
darkness, the the fact that there is no music, that it's just spoken and just hanging out there. I don't know what it is, but A, thank you. And B, how did you develop that vulnerability? I think this is a lesson that we we all need. And uh, and tell me, what was it personal work? Was it showing up and getting your ass kicked? Was it, uh, <laughs> well, what, I, you know, how did you develop that and turn that into the strength that it clearly is for you? Yeah, I mean, definitely all of the above, you know, but um, if I would specifically talk about practices that I had that have um, helped me to open up and be willing to connect with other people, there are many, you know, from body work to yoga to meditation, you know, I meditate twice a day and it's non-negotiable for me, you know, I've done it every single day, twice a day for, I think, over four years now. Is it transcendental meditation? Yeah, Yeah. Vedic. uh, This woman named Emily Fletcher, who's an incredible teacher, um, I took a course with her and um, and I used the word non-negotiable when I started because I knew if I used the word negotiable, I would negotiate, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it's been a game changer for me. But I think poetry has been the biggest thing, you know, having an outlet um, to get my thoughts and my emotions and my stories, you know, out of my mind and my heart and my body and onto the page, because then you know, they don't have as much power over me, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. and, and when I share them with other people, um, and other people say, wow, like I feel less alone listening to that, you know, it's the mirror of humanity. And, and so when other people relate to my truth, uh, I feel more connected to them and myself and uh, more willing to be open with other people. And there, you know, there's a new movement, of course, of, of at least specificity on vulnerability, that vulnerability is strength. And, mm-hmm. and I believe that in my own life. And of course, there were many environments that I was in that vulnerability was not helpful, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And yet oftentimes we drag those past environments into the present and we think, you know, oh, it wasn't safe to be vulnerable then when I was in survival mode. So it's not safe now when you're not in the same reality, man, Yeah. you know? And so that's something that I try to stay aware of in my own life. And I try to um, explore that for my audience. And when I do these poetry workshops, which I do around the country and the world, I provide space for other people to do the same thing. And people are getting on stage and saying things that they maybe have never told anyone And yet, you know, they have a rock star experience because it's only positive, constructive, loving, caring feedback. So people are cheering for them, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's like watching someone go through the process of alchemy before all of our eyes. Um, And so, you know, look, if if you want someone to be vulnerable, you have to be vulnerable first. In those workshops, it's almost irresponsible for me to ask other people to be vulnerable if I don't step into it. Uh, and, you know, say, this is something I'm willing to do. And then I'm holding that container for everybody. And if you want to be more vulnerable with people in your life, you know, say something vulnerable to them. And if they don't respond, well, they're probably a fucking asshole. (laughs) (laughs) And then you don't have to hang out with them anymore. It's actually like a shortcut to intimacy, you know, because you decide whether or not, you know, you want to have somebody in your life. You know, we don't have time to 
you know, give our time away to, to people that aren't going to uh, be willing to truly connect. That is so true. So true. And I'm trying to, I'm, I'm telling myself stories in my head as you're talking about your practice and your process. And I'm, I'm visualizing it as if it's uh, something I don't have access to, but yet here we are <laughs> in a podcast. So um, I'm hoping you can share that with us. Like what, what is your process? What is, you know, are there any universals to your process as you look at with other MCs or spoken word poets or poets in general, maybe not spoken word is like, do you have a, a daily practice and, or what is the process behind your art? Um, you know, it, it changes. Um, but what I will say is that I, I don't really strategize my inspiration. You know, I, I don't, uh, I don't think like, what does my audience want to hear <laughs> or what would resonate in pop culture right now? You know, I mean, I could very easily do that. I could look around at social issues and, and think this could go viral. I'll write a poem about that. But that's fucking boring to me. And I think that there's like, you know, a fast track to co-opting, you know, your authentic voice by doing that, basically. Um, I think that, that strategizing inspiration is one step away from manipulation. And if I'm manipulating my audience, I'm manipulating myself first because I'm the first person in my audience. So I don't want to do that. And in, I don't judge anyone else who does do that. Everyone has their own process, but that, that doesn't work for me. What works better is to pay attention and, uh, you know, start there. You know, think about something that moves me or inspires me or annoys me, you know. And when I'm having conversations with people, uh, I just try to stay aware of the things that spark me and then maybe I'll write them down. Right. You know, if I get a line, like I was talking to somebody the other day and I thought, um, you know, the birds aren't singing to win a Grammy, <laughs> you know, they're not trying to go platinum. <laughs> and that was, I said it in the conversation and then I said, oh, that's, that's pretty fucking good. So I, I stopped and I wrote it down. <laughs> nice, and then, Nice job, me. Good job. <laughs> yeah. Well, sometimes it's other people though, too. You know, sometimes yeah. someone else will say something and I'm like, oh, that's gold. And I say, I always ask, I say, can I use that in a poem? And if they say, yes, I'm off to the races. Like I wrote something relatively recently, like I finished a whole poem and uh, I was in a yoga class and this woman, Ali Michelle, who's an incredible poet and yoga teacher that we did a retreat with in Bali, she said um, during the class, she said, there's nothing in life that you cannot breathe through except death. And I was like, Ooh, man, that's, nice. that's true. <laughs> wow. You know, and, and, when, and so I asked her, can I take that? She said, yes. And that was the start to another poem. And if I start in a place that's true, the rest of the poem will almost write itself if I give it enough time and space. So, uh, you know, the other thing I'd say based on, you know, you asking about practice in general is that, you know, when you're putting in your outlier hours, you have to put in as much time as you possibly can, you know? And, uh, and so that was really valuable for me to just write and write and write and, you know, record and share and take any opportunity I could to explore uh, getting better at my craft, getting more techniques, getting more tools. Um, but eventually, uh, once you really know your own voice, 
it's only really better for me to sit down and write when I'm actually inspired. And if I'm not inspired, sometimes like if I can't finish a poem, I'll just think, well, I haven't lived enough life yet. <laughs> and I'll go out and live a little bit more. And then all of a sudden I'll go, okay, now I know where that poem wants to go. And no one can really teach you what your voice is. Like, as I said, my mom's a school teacher. And so I have great respect for teachers and artistic teachers too. But, you know, artistic teachers, you know, they can tell you what techniques you can use. They can provide platforms for you to explore your voice, but you're only really going to learn your voice from experiencing it. And uh, so anybody out there who's doing art, the two recommendations I would have is start in a place that's true, something that's moving and meaningful to you, and then just experience using your voice. And don't overly judge yourself before you create it. But having that moving and meaningful thing gives a little bit of structure. Because otherwise, if I sat down, it was a blank page, and I was like, I have to create something great right now. Boy, that's a lot of pressure, man. You know? Yeah. yeah. So it's easier for me to start in something that, that already is moving to me. Yeah. And Lamont talks about shitty first drafts. Like, all mm-hmm. you have to do, you, it's your responsibility to that truth. And just starting is the thing that gets you know, most of the, most of us unstuck because there's so much, so much fear around that blank page and, um, and fear of, uh, being judged and getting it quote, right. Mm-hmm. Um, how about, let's get into some particulars. Do you tend to work best in the morning or the evening? I know this is going to be individual for most people, but I want to hear your thought process around, uh, around your, your creative process. Besides, besides be true, start, start with something that's true mm-hmm. and, um, and just tell us where you, where, where your creative process starts and finishes. I mean, it, um, it finishes, you know, when it feels complete, you know, it's like, I don't, what's that Van Gogh quote, you know, he's like, art is like making love, you know, how do you know when you're done making love? You know, <laughs> it's over, it's you over, know. <laughs> you know? So, uh, I think it's like that for me, you know, that's, that's, um, that's really interesting. and then the start, you know, I, I don't, I don't confine it to any time and I don't confine it to any place and I don't confine it to any routine. Um, because, uh, when I confine it to that, I confine it to that. <laughs> yeah. You know, and and so I want to have the freedom to be surprised at, you know, uh, where the next piece is coming from and where the next piece goes, you know, like because I don't strategize, oftentimes I don't know where it's going. You know, it's like I'm the train and I'm on the train and I'm making the tracks as I'm going along, you know, all simultaneously. How do you get over the fear of that? Like, is that just also practice? Is that just more voice? Is that more repetition, more time, as you said? Because in the creation aspect? Yeah, it's just such a, like, for someone who doesn't have freestyle skills or that ability to just create on the fly as I'm, you know, hearing your process, is that just a repetition thing? How do you get over that fear of not having the next word when well, your, your art depends on it? 
Yeah, I mean, I don't really consider myself a freestyle uh, anything anymore. You know, I mean, it was something that I did for many, many years, and I loved doing it and got in battles, and it was an amazing part of my life. But I don't freestyle my poems. You know, it's every single word is so important to me, and I make sure that it's right. And I feel that I'm like the vehicle and the obstacle for my poetry. You know, it's like, in, by the way, in the creation of it and in the sharing, because in the creation of it, I'm the vehicle because, of course, it comes through my thoughts and my emotions and my experiences. Um, but then sometimes I'll be writing and I'll like write something that I think is great, you know, and I'm like, that's fucking great. But it's not right. It's not right for the poem. It's just more about my ego and me showing off. And I have to be the vehicle and then notice when I'm being the obstacle so that I can get out of my own way to be of service to the next line and to express what the poem actually wants to say. Um, and I know that that sounds a little bit corny to some people. But, no. You know, God, I, no. I have a line in the book, the art is more important than the artist, you know, it is basically. And, and that's so I just want to be of service to the piece. And then in the sharing, it's the same thing. It's like, of course, it's coming through my body. It's coming through my voice. It's coming through my mood, you know, and yet also like I want to be validated. I want people to like me. You know, I want everyone that's listening to this podcast to go buy Inquire Within so, you know, that the book is successful and I can live in abundance. And, you know, you have these physical desires that are natural. You're, you're never going to lose your ego because your ego is a part of your humanity, but you get to decide how and when you want to navigate from it. And so when I'm on stage, you know, those things that I want get in the way of the communication of the poem. Mm. They, they actually, you know, create a buffer between me and the audience. And so once again, I try to notice when I'm being the obstacle and, and get out of my own way so that I can actually be present with the people in a new moment. If you, as I have, um, recently begun doing devouring your work you see that love is such a core piece you talk about you know there's relationships with your father and your mother hmm. um, relationships with some other and it's really clear to me that that is a, a force and it's a powerful force in your work where does that come from is that something that you've learned over time is that a, tr a, a universal truth that you believe Where's that? What's the role of love in your work? Well, uh, yeah, love, the only reason we're alive, you know? I mean, that's what we're here to do is to learn how to love ourselves and other people. And I think everything in life is really just love disguised, you know? So um, learning what it means uh, for me and then learning how to show it to the people that are around me um, that I'm closest with and my community and hopefully the world at large through, through my poetry uh, is certainly my goal. And it's not a destination. It's a never ending process and I have various degrees of success and failure on a day to day basis. But, uh, but I'm trying, man. And, um, and every type of love from romantic to familial to friendship uh, to the love of humanity, to the love of myself. 
Well, there's a at the risk of requesting <laughs> performance. Oh yeah, you know, it's all I, good. I'm I, happy I, to, I, man. Really. Um, there's a a piece that I loved in here, and it's about love, um, and it's called "When It's Right." Mm -hmm. And uh, if I could be so bold as to request um, a performance of that or another piece that you love that explores this idea of love that I feel like is so strong in your work um, that or something else is there uh, could, could you do another one for us yeah for sure have you ever heard 85 no okay let me do 85 for you because I feel okay. like that'll resonate and okay. um, you... yeah and this this actually comes from like a very specific story in my life so I I used to live in this like tiny little back house and literally it was so small that I could like put out both of my arms and I could pretty much touch both of the walls. <laughs> and uh, I lived there for a lot of years. I mean, you know, I didn't make any money until I was past 30 and got into songwriting. Um, because even though I realized I wasn't a poet, you know, it was very, very difficult to monetize it and to figure out a way to create a business around it without losing my integrity. And so it took a really, really long time. And so I was living in this back house and the woman who owned the main house, her mom uh, moved in at a certain point. She was in her 80s. And her name's Dolores. And, uh, and we became really good friends. We shared a kitchen together. And so I would go in, I'd make food and coffee and her and I would sit and we would talk about, you know, life and love and the pursuit of happiness. And I would, you know, complain about my ex-girlfriends at the time or whatever was going on in my life. And I came to really, really care about her. And then uh, one night I woke up and I had this big window and through the blinds, um, I you know, saw the ambulance lights and I like looked out and I literally saw her getting taken away on a stretcher. And she was okay, she was alive, but she was having major health complications. And I went and I visited her in the hospital and uh, she had tubes in and out of her system and she had a really high fever and she didn't recognize me. And uh, I sat with her and the, the doctors basically were giving her a pretty bad prognosis. And, and so as I was sitting with her, I basically said my goodbyes to her because I felt like this was her time and I didn't want her to suffer anymore. Um, but of course, Dolores ended up getting better and she fought her way back to health. And they ended up moving her to a retirement community. And after like a month of her living there, I went and I visited her. And we go out in this like little garden area. <laughs> We're like sitting outside and she's like in a good mood. So I'm like, Dolores, why are you in a good mood? And she leans in and she goes, I met a guy. <laughs> and I'm like, what are you talking about? So she, she had met this guy when she moved in and they liked each other. So they started going on dates. And she in, was in the facility. Yes. Or, oh my god! Amazing. And and she was excited and surprised by this. And I just thought, you know, here I was basically thinking that her life was over. And not only is she still alive, but she's able to be excited and surprised by life. You know, and that was that was gorgeous, man. So, you know, to anybody who's listening to this, it doesn't matter what age you are. If you're not willing to be surprised and excited by life, you're not truly living. And really, any single moment has infinite possibilities. And around the next corner could be anything, even love. So this was 
where this next piece 85 came out of. I want to fall in love at 85. Go on shuffleboard dates and dance to hip hop from 95. We would also listen to the song Staying Alive, but only for the message. Otherwise, we'd keep away from disco. It's depressing. We'd rock matching tracksuits and rope gold chains. We'd look like Run DMC, but in their old age. We'd take aerobics classes and wear bifocal glasses and eat at IHOP and hold hands at Sunday masses. And when it comes to the bedroom, well, nothing much would happen in the bedroom because we're 85. But we would still be down to take a walk or take a drive or sit and talk and have a drink, watch the passers-by, ask each other why and how and who and where and when, and then we'd laugh and cry again about the people we had been. And I would touch her withered skin and comment on how thin it is to keep in something infinite. And she would smile, sweet and blush, then tell me that I think too much. She's right, I think too much. <laughs> it's always been a problem. But then again, that's how I made my green like the goblin. When I was in my 20s, I was eating top ramen, counting up my pennies, saving up to go food shopping. But now I'm 85. And somehow I feel more alive. I turn my hearing aid up and bump Jurassic 5. I read the sports page while she peruses classifieds. We like antique stores, garage sales, and barter buys. And when it comes to the bedroom, well, hopefully, every once in a while, she lets me knock her boots into the floral patterns of our bedpost, then hold her head close like death isn't chasing us, planning on erasing us and replacing us with better versions of us, reshaping us, remaking us, then recreating us with new identities so we can make new memories. Hush, little baby. Learn to walk and talk and think and lie and feel and fight and love and die and never get the answers why. She dips a joint of grass and wheat grass and we get high. Her hair is silver as the moon in the Seattle sky. We still pop pills, but it's not the molly anymore. Whenever we can't sleep, we listen to the ocean floor. She got a sound of the CCD for me from the Brookstone store. And ever since, I've been snoring like a, like a really good metaphor for snoring. Sorry, I go blank sometimes. What? I'm 85. I'm not complaining. I'm just happy that I'm still alive and happy that I have my better half by my side. Superfly. She doesn't look a day over 75. When I first saw her, I was totally in awe. She was classical, so I was like, yo, yo, ma. And that was all it took. A single look and I was shook. I fell for her like some loose shingles from our Spanish roof. And I'm a lover till she loses every last root and has to glue dentures to her gums to chew solid food. Ooh. Now that's real love, dude. That's some push-comes-to-shove love. Not when it's convenient love. Hospital bed love.
Feed her ice chips, love. Never leave the room, love. Sleeping in the chair, love. Pray to up above, love. Have to pull the plug, love. Miss her in my bones, love. Everything about her, love. Die within a month, love. Can't live without her, love. Love. The only reason that we are alive and none of us should have to wait until we're 85. Wow. Amazing. <laughs> Thanks, Thank you. man. Thank you so much. Shit, I'm snapping and clapping and I'm muting my <laughs> muting my uh, my uh, recording button over here. Thank you so much, man. Yeah, wow. man. Of course. See why you wanted to do that one. Yeah, it's a it's a, a special one for me. You know, I've been uh, I've been with my girlfriend for two years, but when I wrote that, you know, that piece was a manifestation. You know, and really all of my. Uh, poems it's just me purging or praying or both you know they're they're reminders of of the life that i want to lead and so when i create them it's like i get a chance to repeat them to other people but to myself over and over again um and it it kind of becomes breadcrumb trails you know that i that i get to continue to follow and uh and now i'm i'm living that experience you know with with my girlfriend i just am madly in love with her and so unbelievably happy and it, it makes me appreciative that i didn't settle to settle down you know oh there's this urgency that i'm having a hard time like wrapping my brain around with your work and i think as i'm sort of unwinding even just from this conversation and from what i know about your work like well the story of dolores like so much of that is about how fleeting life is and you know, making the most of what you've got. Hmm. You said something, it's right at the beginning of our conversation around, you know, if you're vulnerable and someone else is not vulnerable in response to your vulnerability, then move the fuck on. Yeah. And, you know, that's, again, there's just, that's a, such a strong presence. Like you don't got time for anyone who's not going to show up. So it's also that, like, you know, I just want to say one thing off of what you said, because I think it's a, a point that I had never thought of before. You know, if they're not willing to be vulnerable, you know, if, if vulnerability is strength and they're not willing to go there, you know, if they're looking at you like you're weak for being vulnerable, it's actually their weak. And that's OK. You know, you don't have to have judgment about it. It's just, you know, it's a road sign for whether or not you want to go that way with that person. Damn, that helps because <laughs> it's a I reframing, think, right? It's yeah, like it is. It's exactly what it is. Yeah. So what were you going to ask, man? I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you no, off. No, no, no. I, I just, to me, there's, it's, it, that's part of, um, I don't know if it's a combination of le being in the moment or an urgency or the now, and maybe it's because the spoken word is so raw. I, I'm trying to reconcile the sort of the emotions that I'm feeling right now. And there's this just powerful presence a powerful celebration of, of being of presence, I guess is just what it feels like. I don't what know, is uh, what does it make you think and feel for your own life? Like, did you think about 
you know, things going on specifically in, in your world when you heard either one of those? Both of them. And that's part of what this, the emotion that I'm trying to sort of put my hands around now, now which is, um, I, I feel like I'm, uh, aware of life and life's fleeting moments. And there's mm. this, when I'm hearing you perform, I just want to like, it just holds me in the moment, which is very, very hard. Like with the, I watch a film mm-hmm. and I, I can't, because I'm a visual storyteller myself, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm so busy it's hard for me to stay in the story because I know so much about filmmaking. Right. <laughs> and I look at a, f- a photograph and I try and like, I'm by just, my mind is instantly deconstructing how it was made. And, you know, of course I, I get the, Im- the immediate like stopping power of the photograph, but then I immediately go into the nuts and bolts and right. it's, it's like your work doesn't allow me to do any of that. It's like, I'm paralyzed and in, in the best possible way so thank like, you man yeah that's the consequences of being a renaissance man like you know such as yourself is that i do the same thing sometimes you know i'll be um looking at something and i'm enjoying the art of it but i'm also analyzing how it was done <laughs> right. so that i can use different things for my own you know i do that with comedians or with films or with music and um because all genres of art can inspire your genre of art you know, oh, for sure. The best stuff comes out from, from outside, you know, mm-hmm. I think it, yeah. otherwise it's an echo chamber. Exactly. Um, you know, you, you said something, I'm going to change the subject here, uh, because you, you mentioned something earlier that I feel like was, uh, it's a thing that people want to know about because what we're sold, you know, I have a, uh, I guess a view on life that we're sold a map and yet no maps exist you know we're told to if we grow up and go to this school and get this job that we're going to have this sort of life and this this partner and you know retire get the gold watch and Hmm. we all know that that's not true even if it was true for a moment it's not true now the reality is I, i don't think it ever was true because if you look across all of time whose life looks like that nobody's it's all we've got curveballs and yeah. and caveats and mountains that we have to climb and seas that we have to almost drown in in order to find out you know who we are and and what we're really after is honing this thing that we call a compass hmm. and the compass it just points us in a direction that our heart wants us to go. If you have this head and heart alignment, it's the, it's exactly what you talked about when you said truth, right? You start with truth. Mm. And if we just followed our own compass. And so this is, you know, this is a point of view that I've developed over time and I think we're sold a map, but we really need to pay attention to our own compass. And when, what I'm getting to is you said something earlier about how to make a living and a life doing what you love and how it was hard. And there's so many people for whom you're a wild inspiration. And yet when they look at being a spoken word poet and they think, okay, great, I got to do X on the side because the number of spoken word poets that, um, can afford to provide for themselves and or their families, you know, I, I don't know how many the number is, but the cultural narrative at least is not many. Yeah. So, so regardless of whether it's in pursuit of spoken word like yourself or, uh, or anything that culture tells us is something that we shouldn't invest in because of its worth or whether you can pursue it as a, as a, a living and a life, how did you figure out and what, or how, how did you like own 
the determination that's required to make a living and a life in a way or a place that I'm sure people told you that it was impossible or difficult because there's so many people who are listening right now that there's something that they want to do mm-hmm. that they don't, so that they don't somehow there's this wall of practicality that's mm-hmm. keeping them out. And, and you know, because you've done it, I know it because I've done it for myself, mm-hmm. but there's people, there are people out there listening to this right now for whom their dream is quote impractical. And what would you tell those people about that? generally and you know in the particular lies universal so what's your particular experience of that yeah i mean there's so much to unpack with what you just said i mean that that was so wise and well said uh first of all if you know what your dream is congratulations (laughs) (laughs) yeah you're you're ahead of 99 percent, right for real man congratulations i fucking mean that because most people they don't know what it is so if you know what it is taking ownership over what it is, is the first step. And, uh, and then finding a way to pursue it, you know, uh, and that could mean all in, it could mean 75% in, it could mean 50% in, but you have to get in. And you can't theorize getting in, you have to experience it, you know, and, you know, I had, I wrote this down the other day, this is one of those things that I might start a poem with, but you can't theorize your boundaries. You have to crash up against them to know they exist. And it's the same thing for, for dreams. You know, you have to go out there and, and test your own limits. Um, and, you know, of course, be practical, but be, you know, practically positive. <laughs> and uh, make sure that you're getting out there. And, and, I mean, it's so beautiful to have a dream. Explore it. You know, you only have so long to be on the planet. And, uh you know, kids, what do they do all day long? They play and they're so close to their imagination. And then as adults, we find something that we're good at, you know, we get validated for it, we monetize it and we stay there because it's comfortable and it feels good to be good at something. But I would rather be bad at something. I'd rather be a student again. I'd rather, uh, you know, take that feeling of not knowing how to do something and, and then, you know, play with that and fall flat on my face and then bring that type of experimentation back into my art. And your voice is unique, you know, and we want to hear it. I want to hear it. So that's the first thing I would say. If you don't know what it is that your dream is, um, you know, just think about what it is that you're, I guess, passionate about, you know, and if you don't know what you're passionate about, think about, what you're enthusiastic about. And if you don't know what you're enthusiastic about, think about what you're interested in. And if you don't know what you're interested in, think about what you're curious about. I mean, everybody can say what they're curious about, you know, and then follow that, you know, follow the path and the path will lead the way. That really just means follow your enthusiasm and, you know, every step will unfold in front of you. And in terms of my enthusiasm, you know, the, the main theme of this book, Inquire Within, you know, as you look at the cover, it's the tree and the branches mirror the roots. And then if you turn it to the side, it looks like lungs. And the two halves of the book are inhale and exhale. And, you know, the inhale is, of course, the personal poems. It's like my own, you know, poetic hero's journey. 
and exhale is the social and political stuff and it's you know change yourself and you can change the world and these days you know we're, we're living in a time where consumerism has trained all of us to look outside of ourselves for the answers you know if i don't know something what do i do i look on google or you know i go on youtube and um while technology is an incredible tool i mean you and i are talking right now you're in Seattle. I'm in Los Angeles. We've never met before. I I'm, feel like this conversation has just made us friends and we're recording it. We have no way to quantify where it goes in the world or how it could possibly influence or impact people. And that's a beautiful, beautiful thing, man. It, it, you know, this Internet thing has connected the entire planet. And yet simultaneously, people feel more alone than ever. They feel disconnected from their community. They feel disconnected from their own voice. They can't hear that true north or that compass that you were talking about earlier. And I think that there is a difference between using these tools and having these tools use us. And so, you know, anyone who's listening to this, you know, I, I would encourage you if you have something going on right now that you can't figure out, you know, you can, of course, uh, ask a friend or consult a coach. Those things are amazing. But also just find time to be by yourself and to sit in silence or to sit in nature and allow all of that other noise of the modern world to go away, you know, because in that space, your true voice will rise. And that is the thing that's going to tell you where you need to go in life. And so that's why it's Inquire Within. I had to inquire within myself to create these poems. I hope people inquire within the pages and ultimately inquire within themselves because I hope that this this book is a window really for people to hear their own true voice better. Man, not only did you just take what I believe and I took took a lot of years to discover and did you say it i guess this is your job as a poet right you take the infinitely complex and you put it in a handful of lines <laughs> i so do my best <laughs> thank you for that um, yeah man but i relate everything you said the reason why i responded with such a diatribe is because i resonated so deeply with uh that perspective that you brought up i mean it's you know that that's probably why rich wanted to connect us because he knew we would automatically be aligned <laughs> in that way you know He's pretty smart like that. He's, yeah. he's got he's got a good radar. Um, you've made some good money writing for people like Selena Gomez, uh, Miley Cyrus, Mike Posner, Foster the People. Side note: I got to climb Mount Kilimanjaro with uh, Mark Foster a couple of years ago. It was a treat. That's um, dope, man. I didn't know that. Yeah, That's yeah. awesome, dude. You know, yeah. Posner is uh, Mike Posner is now a mountaineer. A mountaineer. Is that how you say it? Yeah, that is how you say it. Yeah. yeah, he's been doing all sorts of big mountains as well. And but I didn't know uh, Foster did that, man. He's a great guy. Really, yeah. really good. Good dude. I bet you guys had a, a really awesome adventure. Oh, it was epic. It was epic for sure. Um, but I, what, what I want to man, what, what, what did oh. you learn from that? I mean, I'm sure that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> guess, but I'm, I mean, I'm certainly curious. Well, it, it was, uh, this is a number of years ago, but it was um, a celebrity climb to raise awareness for access to clean drinking water. At the mm. time, there was more than a billion people uh, who who uh, go without access to drinking water every day. And since that time, a few years ago, it's actually been in, in part due to charities like Charity Water and mm -hmm. um, and Water.org uh, that 
you know, a lot of headway has been made, but it was trying to draw uh, early awareness to this problem because it was, it's very solvable. It's not a technology issue. Like we have all of the things we need. We just need people to care. Right. So we were try- trying to raise some awareness and myself and Kenna, I don't know if you know Kenna, the musician. Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's great. Kenna and uh, Mark, uh, a couple other cats. Um, anyway, you know what's was- weird? What you said is so true, man. A lot of it is not a technology issue it's an awareness issue and a caring issue it's the truth and that's part like makes you when you talk about you know in in the part of the you, know, you said you divided the book into two parts one is this sort of inquiry and and the answers are inside the other part is like what effect can you have on the world and how can you change the world and it's sort of just this awareness part of the problem is the the hurdle for most problems being solved right so that's you know you're that's one of the things that i got from that that part of the a book for sure is just speaking your truth and so if, you know a little off track with my own personal mountain climbing expeditions but in a, in a way it relates right it's like it's a huge core message of the book but my my the reason for broaching the topic and was your crazy success uh, with songs like uh, "Love You Like a Love Song" by Selena Gomez? That I, I don't know how many, how many, uh, <laughs> how many streams or copies you've sold, but uh, I know it's, it was multi platinum the last time I checked. Um, yeah, I think that, it, a... it, that might have like a billion views in and of itself, <laughs> something oh crazy like that. So, um... but is that is that parallel path to your work? Is it the same work? Uh, with a different application you know when it goes back to monetizing or deciding to pursue the thing that you want to be doing in life and just taking the first step and the next several steps will unfold was that how you know writing hit songs came about for you well um you know so there's the 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 short fairy tale version you know which is of course oh one day i woke up and i realized i was more of a poet than an mc (laughs) And then there's the real version, which it took me a time to transition, man, you know, because I I write about this in the book, too. You know, there's a difference between ideas and ideologies. You know, ideas are tools that you can use in your life that will change as your truth and your experience changes. But ideologies become a part of your identity, you know, and that's why it's so difficult for people to change their minds because once your ideology is your identity, then changing your mind means a part of you has to die, you know, and people will do anything to hold on to their identity. And at the time, being an MC was a part of my identity. So I had been pursuing this dream and I didn't even realize that I didn't want it like I had wanted it in the past. I just was pursuing it almost by pure habit or because it was who I thought I was. And then ultimately I realized that I was fighting against the flow of life and I needed to be open to new creative opportunities. So um, when I really started pursuing being a poet, I truly realized that that was where my passion was at that time in my life. Um, But I couldn't figure out how to monetize it. And I was doing all these shows around Los Angeles and, um, you know, college shows just to get by and, Um, and I ended up uh, having a mentor who's a producer and an engineer named Ross Hogarth, who was kind enough to set me up with a meeting with a production team and writing duo named Rock Mafia. And, uh, Rock Mafia was a really, and still is very, very successful. Um, you know, they're a record company, they have studios in Santa Monica and, 
um, they had just worked really hard and had a lot of um, success in the business already. And they were willing to bring me in and give me some opportunities. And so I started writing on all of these songs, you know, 40 some odd Disney songs now over the years that we've done for Disney television. I had, you know, two songs go gold last year off of the Descendants 3 soundtrack. And at first, Chase, I I really was like, what the fuck am I doing? Like, I was like, I don't know how to do this. I've never even listened to pop music. And and yet I was kind of desperate because I hadn't figured out a way to make any money. And, you know, being a struggling artist is cool in your 20s, but (laughs) you get to your 30s, man, and it's exhausting, you know. So uh, I was willing to go with the flow of life and try something new. And ultimately, not only did it give me financial success and financial freedom to re-choose poetry with uh, consciousness and to build a business around it with my manager, Kevin, and um, and now to have this book that that's coming out and be traveling around and be the first poet to perform on Cirque du Soleil. I mean, we've done so many wild things over the years now that I'm so excited about and that I would never have done had I not had the opportunity to start songwriting. But the other part of it that was really unexpected is that I became a better poet because I was forced to songwrite in a way that I had never written, which was Mm. I had to use my imagination. I had to think about someone else's experience. I had to think, well, you know, if I was this other person, what would I say and feel? And then in songs, you know, they're very round and they're fluid, whereas a lot of my stuff is choppy and rhythmic. So I had to write in this new way and I had to take Uh, whatever it is that I was trying to say and say it with much less words, you know, and still try to bring my depth uh, through whatever it was that I was writing. And we took everything seriously. There's not one, no Disney song. I never just wrote to wrote, you know, me and uh, Tim Tim James and Antonina Armato and Thomas Sturgis, who was kind of the team that we usually wrote with. You know, we look at every single thing and we try to make the absolute best piece of art we can. Um, and ultimately, it was it was one of the biggest gifts to start doing that and then allowed me to pursue my poetry with more freedom. That's just there's this trust that you you said it a couple of times, but you don't have to see everything. You just have to see the next step. Like, you know, and presumably that's the same thing that's, you know, got you in front of I know you organizations like Nike and Instagram and Spotify Mm. and all these folks, you know, have you, uh, teach them about your craft, uh, inspire them, motivate teams. Uh, and I'm sure you didn't think about that when you were, uh, you know, 15 years ago trying to be an MC in LA, but here you are. And sounds like living the dream. I don't know if it's putting words in your mouth, but my God, to be able to be a poet, in 2020 is inspirational as hell. Yeah, man, I feel so lucky, man. And I believe in this art form, you know, I really truly do. I mean, if if I was uh, a corporate poet- thousands, and, thousands of years old. Yeah, right? I know. It's the oldest, it's just storytelling. It's, it's us sharing our history, you know, uh, and passing it along to the next generation. And that's that's my dream, man. I mean, you know, I want, Eight-year-old kids to think I want to be a poet when I grow up, and I, you know, I believe in this 
uh, genre, I, you know, some of my best art experiences ever were as an audience member watching another poet on stage. And I think if you want to break a genre in popular culture, you have to make a star. And if you make a star, you know, it's kind of an anomaly. But if you make a few, then it's a movement and, you know, it'll it'll have its own momentum. And I think that poets should be on the cover of, you know, Rolling Stone and have their own category at the Grammys and be opening up Saturday Night Live and have their own sitcoms. And and I believe that it's a matter of time. And so I'm just like grateful and humbled to be a small part of that wave. But there's a lot of other amazing, amazing poets out there that that are doing their thing and, you know, people that still inspire me to this day. Well, uh, if your current trajectory and what we just got a snippet of today is any indication, I'll expect to see you on a lot more magazine covers in the not too distant (laughs) future, man. Congratulations on on the success in the career and incredible, incredible book Um, for those folks who are listening right now. Inquire Within is the title of the book um it is beautiful and eloquent and um moving and powerful and introspective um and not only is it uh, a path to finding your what's true for you but uh, about how to unleash that and create impact in the world so congratulations man thank you so much for being on the show before we go where where's the best place for people to find you besides picking up acquire or a copy of inquire within yeah so um you can first of all get that on my website which is in-q.com and uh and then you know we partnered up with uh, harper one which is like harper collins spiritual division so they do the alchemist and the four agreements books that i'm really you know, a fan of and that I have on my coffee table. So it should be uh, in Barnes and Noble and all independent bookstores. We tried to get it everywhere we possibly could in the independent bookstores as well. Um, So definitely get that. And if you do get it, you know, feel free to tag me and let me know what you think. And on Instagram um, at InQLife. Um, And then we have public shows, you know, all around the country. We're going to have a longer tour in the fall, but we're starting out with New York and San Fran and uh, Los Angeles. And then we're coming your way in Seattle as part of um, Death Over Dinner, um, which is a a program that a friend of mine named Michael Hebb has put together. So we'll make sure to set you up with that if you... Do, Do you know how far Michael and I go back? We go back like 15 years, dude. Are you serious? That's my boy, man. No, he's my boy. I don't know how it could be. No, he's like I love that. He's actually he's been on the show before, man. He's like, yeah, we we've done all kinds of crazy collaborations. We had uh, songs for eating and drinking, which was basically uh, stand up and perform for your supper. Hmm. Oh, you know, so many amazing bands and and spoken word poets and so shit. It's a, of course you're friends with Michael. He's a renaissance man. I mean, he's just <laughs> you know I, he actually had me out there. I mean, this is a bit off topic, but. Uh, he brought me out to uh, Seattle and st- we stayed together for a few days on uh, on his house on, on one of the islands. And uh, Vashon, Vashon, Vashon Island. That's right. Vashon, Vashon was house. gorgeous, brother. That little, he was right on the water with that yeah. little, uh, little fire area in the front yard there. Yeah. And you know, my father had just died at that point. And that was, that was the first time that I, I started to meditate. I didn't think that was going to affect me. And yet, for various reasons, it did. And and that, I think, is one of the reasons that I was led to meditation. And so I remember waking up from one of my meditations. And, you know, he lives right on the water, as you know. And so I opened up my eyes and there was a full, like, double rainbow, 
literally was covering the whole entire sky. And so that was, that was a pivotal uh, trip for me. And, and Michael just showed hospitality as he always does. So, so we're coming your way and, and, you know, we'll definitely get a chance to hang then. And, and, and lastly, I just wanted to thank you, man, because I know, you know, you've developed a relationship with, uh, with your audience and they trust you. And so I, I just wanted to honor that and acknowledge the fact that I appreciate you, you bringing me on to do my work and it's, it's meaningful to me. So thank well, you. I, I take this role very seriously in finding people that will inspire and teach and lead. Uh, and you exemplify all of those qualities. And I'm looking forward to you being up in Seattle. Um, I can't wait. <laughs> you, me and Michael spending some time together is in our future. I, I can't wait. And thank for you sure. so much for, for those uh, Rich Roll fans out there. Uh, do give Rich a shout out because he, he's the one who connected us. So grateful to have you on the show. You're welcome here anytime. Congrats again on Inquire Within. It's stunning as are, are you as a performer, man. So thank you so much. Thanks, Chase. Hey, that was an awesome episode. But before you bounce, just I got three quick thoughts. First, thank you for being in this community. It gives me so much juice. I can't even tell you so much juice that when I hit publish and this show goes out into the ether, that there's an amazing community of like-minded people just like you consuming and sharing the show. So thank you. Second, it would be huge. It would mean the world to me if you left a review at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Now, we're regularly featured at the top slot there on Apple's podcast page and others in Spotify, etc. And that's because of your reviews. So if you've ever wanted to uh, lend a hand or you got some value from me in the past and you want to pay it forward, that would be amazing. And then lastly, it would also mean the world to me if you shared the content that you get here, whether it's a screenshot or a photo of where you're listening, anything via Instagram stories um, or any other social feeds tagging me and the guests. Now, I repost this content and your comments all the time, so I would love to share your shout outs in my feed too. Um, not only do these shout outs, uh, are, are they good for you and me, but they also help us book amazing guests because they see the reach that you cultivate. This is a way for you to help contribute to the show. So again, I want to say thanks. I'm just at Chase Jarvis. You can use at creative live as well. And the guests are easy to track down because they are, well, they're usually quite well-known people. Um, but again, thank you so much for listening. I'm looking forward to being in your ears again, hopefully tomorrow.